You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 18. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, Since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Thanks, Greg. Well, you and I do spend a fair amount of time each week waiting. And my guess is it's probably pretty mundane normally and pretty passive. So you're waiting at a stoplight or waiting for your coffee order or waiting to pick up kids from school in that pickup line or waiting to pick them up from practice, waiting for a game to start or waiting at the doctor's office, waiting for a prescription to be filled. But it occurred to me this week as I was thinking about waiting in line with this text that waiting has changed a lot since about 25 years ago when cell phones took over. I was at Papa Murphy's a few days ago. I was picking up my free large pizza thanks to Julia Klein, Elk River Girls Basketball. (laughs) I had my coupon card and I was in there and then I was waiting at the end of the counter for the pizza And every single person there, before the dinner rush, was on their cell phone, in cell phone posture, head down, phone up, me included. And that same day, I had a couple of my kids at the orthodontist, and we were there for a braces check, and I'm telling this story with her permission, but I said to one of my 13-year-olds, I said to her, hey, don't just sit on your phone the whole time while we're waiting for your brother. So she brought in a book from the car. I thought, well, that's a great idea. And then I look over as we're at the orthodontist's office, and she is using the book to hold her cell phone, (laughs) playing Game Pigeon or whatever she's on now. But I'm the first to admit that this is a challenge for all of us adults included, and so I'm not throwing any stones. But whether it's now or it's 25 years ago, waiting is for us often passive. That's the way we think of it. And waiting has been a central theme to what we've been reading these last four to five weeks in Second Peter. We've called this series Great and Precious Promises. And promises 
are something that you have to wait for. We wait for a promise to be fulfilled, whether it's a silly little everyday promise like telling the kids, I'm going to take you out to Denny's after church, or it is one of the great and precious promises of God, like Jesus' return. We're waiting for the promise to take place. So today we finish Second Peter, and after that we begin the season of Lent. As Tara announced for us, we're going to start Lent actually on Wednesday at our Ash Wednesday service. And we'd love to have you here. We'll have our students here and engaged in worship as well. And it's a service for our whole church family, just in the community room where the Y Church started. And by the way, if you can't make it, we will try to live stream it for the first time out of the community room. So if you do need to stay home, you can catch us on the screen. And then next Sunday is the first Sunday in Lent. And we'll begin a message series that will take us all the way to Palm Sunday that will be focused on prayer. And if you want to get ready for next week, then sometime this week you can read Nehemiah chapter 1. And that's where we're going to go as we will make our way all over the scriptures in a series on prayer. But that'll be week 1, Nehemiah chapter 1. But today, 2 Peter 3, in the second half of the chapter... This is in some ways part two of the message that we started last week in verses 1 through 9. Because thematically, the focus continues to be on the return of Christ. But the shift that will happen now in part two in verses 10 through 18 is that Peter moves from the teaching principles into the imperatives. So what do we do now that we know this? In other words, based on the teaching, what does it mean now for how I live my life? What does waiting look like? So let's dive into this text. We're going to work through it together, and we're going to see how Peter applies it to our lives. And then I'd like to finish today with a story about a man and his horse. That's where we're headed, and that's where we'll finish. So let's look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That verse says, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Now, if you've spent some time here these last weeks, you think across these past Sundays in Second Peter, you'll remember that what was going on in the background is Peter is writing to churches that are in northern Asia Minor. It's a place we now call Turkey. And the churches there had come under the influence of some false teaching. What that means is simply teaching outside the teaching of Scripture. And they were saying that Jesus is not actually coming back. Now we know that the Bible tells us clearly this whole story, the whole narrative. Jesus was here the first time as a baby in a manger, the Son of God in human flesh. And he came to live and to die to save us from sin. And he was raised again from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven. And it says all over Scripture that One day, the day of the Lord will come, a day when Jesus will return in full authority and power to judge the living and the dead and to set everything right for all eternity. And so the false teachers are folks within the church who started to say, hey, it's been so long, Jesus isn't coming back. There's no day of the Lord. There's no day of judgment. And so I guess we can do whatever we want because it doesn't really matter. And people started to listen and they started to wonder or to be confused and some were falling away from the faith. These are the things that Peter is addressing. And it's where we left off last week, right before this, when Peter said, 
And I'll just remind us of where we were in verse 9. He said, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And now we're at verse 10, which continues on that teaching of Jesus' second coming. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And who does that echo? It's the very words of Jesus in Matthew 24, also in Luke's gospel, where Jesus says, If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also, Jesus says, must be ready because the Son of Man, and that's Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself, the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And the Apostle Paul picks up this language. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And the Bible says, you know, don't worry about figuring out times and the date of his return as some have been prone to do. Jesus will come suddenly. He will come unexpectedly. And when he comes, the earth as you and I know it will be finished. Peter says in our verse, the heavens will disappear. The elements will be destroyed by fire which if you were here last week, that's a contrast to the flood at Noah's time, and the earth will be laid bare. Now we'll return to this in a few verses, but that has been the teaching of this entire letter. Jesus is coming back, contrary to what some may say, and the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, is very real indeed. And that brings us to verse 11. Peter says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, and now here's the application question, what kind of people ought you to be? Peter answers his own question, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So I want you to see the contrast that's happening. The false teachers are saying there's no return of Christ There's no judgment day, so we might as well indulge every thought and pleasure and live for ourselves, which they did, and took people along with them. Peter says, and the whole account of Scripture says, Jesus is coming back. And any apparent delay, what we might consider a delay, is really just because of his kindness, so that people will come to faith. There will be a day of judgment, and so you ought to live holy and godly lives. When Esther and I stood before the judge on adoption day, I was just thinking back to this, thinking about this whole concept of judgment day. I know that we were very careful to get up on time. We were at a hotel there outside the city where this took place. And we did not roll in five minutes late in our pajamas, sipping on a monster or ice latte or whatever to try to wake up. Nor did we look lazily at the judge and call him Charlie. His name was Charles. And we certainly did not call him bruh, as some do. We did not answer his questions by mumbling or saying, well, I guess so. But it was always, yes, your honor. No, your honor. Thank you, your honor. Peter says, in light of Jesus' return... As our judge and king, we ought to live holy and godly lives. And here's the connection I think that is so important for us to make. Eschatology, and that's just the fancy word to say the end things, like the book of Revelation. 
Eschatology goes hand in hand with ethics, with how we live life. Eschatology is not some pie-in-the-sky apocalyptic fairy tale, but it has real-life implications, and that's what Peter is drawing out. There were a few times when I was a kid that I got in trouble, well, more than a few, but there were a few times when my mom said something very specific, and she would say, wait until your father gets home. (laughs) And that got my attention real quick. In fact, I think the reason that I only remember her saying that very few times is that from there on out, I always knew at the end of the workday, my dad is coming home. Now, my dad loved me. I knew that. But I'm accountable to my dad. And I did not want to get on the wrong side of his discipline. Now, unlike those under the sway of false teaching, which persist today. Peter's writing 2,000 years ago. He could be writing the same thing today. He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God when he returns and as you speed its coming. I don't even know how that works, but the Bible would suggest then that if we live faithfully and watchfully for the Lord, it actually means he'll come back sooner. And if you think about the prayer that we, I think, almost always pray at the end of our worship time together, the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come. Let it come, Lord. Come soon. And so we see that in both our prayers and in our godliness, we can speed its coming. We continue in verse 12. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This whole letter is bookended by the word promise. As we were getting ready months ago for this sermon series, I just love this discovery. In chapter 1 verse 4 we heard, he has given us his very great and precious promises. And now in 3.13 Peter comes back to it and he says, but in keeping with his promise. And the promise that's in view here is that he will make a new heaven and a new earth. We read about it in places like Isaiah 65 and 66, but probably the most well-known reference, often read, by the way, at funerals and memorial services, is Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And when that day comes... Peter says, it will be a place where righteousness dwells. We could go right back to Revelation 21, where it says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And further on down, it says, no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And with that reminder of God's promise, Peter shifts gears now in his letter on the home stretch into the imperative. And this is where it all leads. Verse 14, so then, dear friends, you remember what we said about that last week? Dear friends is actually beloved, is the word. So then, beloved, since you are looking forward to this, and here's the imperative, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, 
and at peace with him. And bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Now I bridge that last clause into verse 14. Since it's all one sentence in the original. The NIV, they put a period and start a new sentence. But it's all one. And Peter we see is listing essentially three things that are worth our every effort. To be found spotless and blameless. To be found at peace with God. And to remember that what looks like a delay is really the Lord's patience for people to come to Christ. He says, make every effort for this. I was playing a game of boot hockey yesterday morning down at the Hanky Pit here in Elk River. And it is by far the most strenuous workout that I get. My wife would probably tell you it's the only workout I ever get. But one of our friends actually from church here, Zach, he had on a calorie counter on his, I don't know what those are, I don't have one, but it counts how many calories you burn. And we played 90 minutes, and we burned 1,200 calories in 90 minutes. Now, the wonderful thing about that is that translates to three or four donuts at Blue Egg, if you do the math. But I am just exhausted after a morning of running around on the ice. Well, what picture comes to mind for you? What does make every effort look like? And now, Peter would say, what does make every effort look like in spiritual health? And I want to remind us that effort by no means cancels out grace. We do not make effort for our salvation. That cannot be done. We make every effort because of our salvation to live for the one who has saved us by grace. So I'm just asking the question of myself first and of you, my friends, is that what you are doing? Are you making every effort or is your effort lackadaisical or leisurely? These are questions for us to consider and to do so as you're here where you are encouraged by your teammates who are running around the ice with you, that you would be cheered on and encouraged as you consider these things. In the letter, Peter then makes the parallel to the Apostle Paul. Now for the sake of time, I'm not going to reread these verses. I'm going to tell you three summary points that we see here that are relevant. It starts in the second half of 15. Peter is saying, first of all, that Paul, the apostle, wrote and taught the same exact thing. Peter is saying, there is no disagreement between Paul and I. And what we see is the false teachers were probably taking Paul's writings, his letters, and they were twisting his words. The second observation here, some of Paul's writing is hard to understand. Now, Peter was a fisherman. Paul was a scholar who wrote in brilliant, lengthy prose. And so Peter is saying to his readers, yeah, I know it can be a little tricky. But number three, third observation, some people will use that to actually distort his words, and they will distort other scriptures, but they do so, says Peter, to their own demise. So we talked about that earlier in this letter. There were people then, and there are people today, who will take Scripture, they won't abandon it, but they will take it and twist it. Whether out of ignorance or ulterior motive, they will try to make Christian teaching more palatable or use it to fit their own purpose. 
but it leads ultimately to their destruction. There is no life in deviating from the word of God. And then we arrive at the big finish. So that just is a summary to those verses. But let's look now at 17 and 18. And what clues us in to this being the big finish is how verse 17 begins. Therefore, Peter's wrapping this whole thing up. He says, therefore, beloved, since you have been forewarned. And here's the first of two imperatives that Peter will close out this letter with. Number one. Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. If you have ever been rock climbing, maybe even just up at Chaminade, you tried the climbing wall, you know how carefully a climbing guide goes about their task. They have to be certified to serve in that way, right? And they check the integrity of the ropes before they're used. They check the knots. They check the harness and the helmet. They have certain commands that you have to use if they're assisting you on belay. And if that climbing guide, if you've ever done this and you've been out in the wild and you've been real rock climbing, then all the more so. They will have studied the climbing route. They will watch the weather, the time of day. They take extreme caution in setting and testing the anchors. They take every warning seriously. And the point I make in this analogy is that to do so does not in any way stifle their joy or quench their confidence in climbing. It's quite the opposite. But it's in paying attention to those warnings that will actually add to their enjoyment and their confidence. And Peter is saying with this imperative that believers, that you and I maintain our secure position By heeding this warning, not ignoring it. That's the word extended to us. Be on your guard so that you don't get derailed by the times and fall away from the faith. That's the first imperative. And then here comes the second in verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. And I would say amen, but I don't think it's the end of the sermon yet. (laughs) But Peter does. It's the end of his letter. He's saying, don't get derailed, but instead do this. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. You are not just made to grow physically from a child into an adult, but you and I were made to grow spiritually and relationally with God. And that's what Peter says we should do. We have the defensive plan. He gave us that in imperative one. To be on guard. And this is the offensive plan. To grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And look what happens then when you put those last two verses together. I would call these the marching orders of this entire letter. I summed it up this way for us. Be on your guard so you don't lose the faith. And grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. I don't know if you heard about something pretty extraordinary that happened this past week. But on Wednesday, the weekly chapel service at Asbury University in Kentucky didn't end. 
There was a message. This is a small Christian university, maybe about 2,000 students in Wilmore, Kentucky. And so every week there's a chapel service on Wednesday at 10. And there had been a message, a particularly powerful message as it was reported. There was the closing blessing like we do, the closing benediction. And then the gospel choir sang a final chorus. And the students just didn't leave. There was such an atmosphere of just prayer and worship and singing. And it hasn't stopped since Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock. Day and night, the auditorium, Hughes Auditorium at Asbury, is in a state of worship and prayer. And students from other universities have been coming and then bringing it home to where they're studying, to their campuses. And what this is called in historical terms is a revival. And from everything I have read and heard since last Wednesday, what's happening at Asbury is the real deal. It is not manipulated It is not contrived. It's not sensationalism. It's not forced. It is an extraordinary moving of the Holy Spirit. And students, this started with Gen Z. And I don't want you to miss that. Your generation growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. So I was talking with a pastor buddy of mine who a couple of days ago drove there lives a little bit closer than we do. He drove to Asbury to see it. And we were talking on the phone after his visit. And he asked me then at some point, he said, hey, do you know the story of Francis Asbury, the namesake of the school? And I recognize the name probably from some church history class somewhere, but I I have no clue who this was. And so he sent me the story. And what I discovered was the story of a man on a horse who I want to share with you to close knew what waiting was looks like, what it means to wait for the return of Christ and to wait actively. And I want to finish our time this morning by telling you his story. It actually begins right before his time, and that was with an Englishman named John Wesley in the 1700s, who was probably the greatest Christian leader since Martin Luther. Wesley, who was the father of Methodism, had a profound impact on the world. And much of it happened on horseback. That was the mode of transportation of the time. And so John Wesley carried the gospel all over England. And England was spiritually a pretty dark place at that time. And he would carry the gospel on horseback, town to town. And he trained others to do the same. And these others on horseback, following John Wesley's pattern, they were called circuit riders. Circuit riders. And essentially what they would do is they would assign you like 10 towns on what they called a circuit. You would go and you would share about Jesus and you would preach the gospel. And in these pretty rough and tumble places in England, people would respond and they would receive Christ. And then you would teach them how to study the Bible. And then you would continue on your way and you'd go to the second town. You'd do the same thing. And you would just ride this circuit, your 10 towns or so, as this traveling missionary. And this is how people were discipled. So this is the time of Wesley when this happens. And there's a guy in his 20s whose name is Francis Asbury. And at a Methodist prayer meeting, Asbury, in his 20s, comes to faith in Christ in a radical way. 
And so he too decides that he's going to be a circuit rider. And so he gets his horse, and he gets his ten towns assigned. And then for the next year, he does the circuit, traveling around and sharing the gospel and discipling people. Well then, Wesley calls a meeting of all of his circuit riders across England to come together And they're going to do some training, and he has a particular announcement to make, a new opportunity. He says there is this vast continent on the other side of the ocean that he says is part of the mission field. That's a pretty rough place. It's a new nation. There are a ton of people there who don't know about Jesus. So he says, we're looking to send circuit riders, or at least one of you, to go to this new place. It is a place called America. And Francis Asbury raises his hand and says, well, I'll go. Now, Wesley and the leaders then took that into conference with each other. They said, well, what do you think about Francis Asbury? Could he be our representative? You know, it's very interesting. They wrote in their notes that Asbury was commendable. His character, his integrity, his faith, those were all commendable, but he wasn't a very good preacher. He was not articulate. He fumbled around a lot. He was still getting to know his Bible. And so here's what they said. He is commendable but expendable. And they sent him over the ocean to America. Now, Asbury arrives in America, and it is the middle of the Revolutionary War. How many of you know it's not a good idea to be a British missionary arriving in America in the middle of the Revolutionary War. So all the other British missionaries are leaving as Asbury is arriving, but he gets a horse, and he starts doing what he'd been doing the last year, riding the circuit and taking the gospel to all these American towns and people. And he's riding the circuit, and he's doing what Wesley did. He's asking other people to join him. And in his lifetime... Francis Asbury personally commissioned 4,000 circuit riders in this country. It was a dangerous job. 50% of these young men died in their early 20s and their early 30s. But this became the catalyst to the Second Great Awakening, which was a revival that lasted for 40 years in this country, an extraordinary move of God that reformed the nation. Francis Asbury had such a profound impact on our country that the number one baby name towards the end of his life was the name Francis. You could write a letter from anywhere in the country and you would just put on the envelope, Francis Asbury, United States of America, and it would get to him. Asbury never owned a home. He never married. He was often sick. They didn't have the term to describe it then, but you look back and you read about it. He developed rheumatoid arthritis. And so he rode horseback at times in excruciating pain. And he holds the record for the most miles of any person traveled on horse. It had been held by John Wesley. Maybe you've heard that before. Wesley rode 210,000 miles carrying the gospel across England. But Francis Asbury, commendable, expendable Francis Asbury, rode 240,000 miles carrying the gospel across America. And I tell you this story because that's what waiting 
looks like. It is active. It is looking forward to the day when Christ returns. It is living a holy and godly life. Whoever told you that living holy and godly was boring? Let's go talk to Francis Asbury. This is what it means to keep a guard on the faith and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. So the call to us at the close of 2 Peter, my call to you, is to get on your horse, whatever that looks like. To take this message and to eagerly and actively await the Lord's return. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this little letter. Maybe one that's less visited than others in the Bible. And yet, Lord, such profound and practical truths for us to hear from you. I thank you, Lord, that through this writing, you have solidified and reminded us of the great truths and promises of our faith. And Lord, I pray that the years that you give to us on this earth would not be ones of passive waiting or accumulating wealth or looking for comfort. But Lord, would you give us the fire and the passion and the drive and the love of Francis Asbury, one who saw you and received you and knew you so well. And move us out, Lord, into this world to do the things that you would like to do. We thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer. And we close this worship service joining our brothers and sisters in Wilmore, Kentucky this morning in praise and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.